Thank you, Lindsay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on those words this morning, continue to draw our hearts towards Jesus. We sing these songs of praise in honor of the one who has come. We celebrate this Christmas season, the birth of the Messiah. And it is our heartbeat, Father, that we might come and adore Jesus. God, in the midst of all of the busyness and the distractions and in, in, the, in the good things of this Christmas season, Lord, would you quiet our hearts this morning so that we might see Jesus, so that we might adore Jesus, that they would be more than just words in a song, but they would be the posture of our heart, that we might come and, and bow before you, the, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God who is in your divine wisdom orchestrated a way so that we might, we might come before you, so that we might receive forgiveness of sins, so that we might have hope, so that we might have life. As we look at this beautiful hymn and these verses today, I pray that you would awaken our hearts to the glory of the incarnation, the word become flesh, and that we might leave here today not just with more knowledge, but with hearts full of wonder and worship. And a God who would come and become one of us, that he might save us. Thank you, God, for what you're going to teach us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And while you're finding your place there, I just want to say welcome. We sure are glad you're here. We're glad you're worshiping with us today. We're glad that uh, you can come and you made it here safely in, in, the, in the snow. It's looking, it's looking like Christmas. We've got the snow. We've got decorations. It's, we're there. We're in December now. Here it is. Whether you want it, whether you're ready for it or not, we're here. And uh, with that note, um, I, I want to just mention a couple of things. First of all, if you haven't had a chance to grab uh, one or two or five tags off the angel tree, make sure you do that before you leave today. Uh, there's different tags that have different types of gifts, and uh, those are just an opportunity for you to be a blessing to families and individuals and, and some ministries in our community uh, during this Christmas season. And there's lots of different options and opportunities there. So make sure you take a look at some of those tags and see if you can take one home and, and be a blessing in that way. The second thing I just want to draw your attention to, I'm not going to read through it, but it's in your bulletin. Just make, a, make sure you take a look at the service times that are coming up here for the Christmas season uh, with uh, some of the changes. We've got the kids program on the 17th. You want to make sure you're here for that, as well as uh, on the 24th uh, on Christmas Eve. It's, it falls on a Sunday this year, uh, so just make sure you take a look and are aware of those service times so that you're, you're here when we're here uh, and we can worship together. As I was looking over this passage, verses 5 through 11 this week, um, I had originally intended to, to just preach on it in one service and then continue to move on. This week I was praying through it and I was thinking about what we would 
what we would talk about during this Christmas season as we come through Advent, as we come through the next few weeks and into the new year, I, I begin to just realize that there is so much to these verses that, that this is something that we can talk about for the next few weeks as we, as we get closer and closer to Christmas. Because this is, in some ways, a quintessential Christmas passage. It's, it's not the Christmas story that we read about in Luke 2. But this is the description, that the, the revelation of Jesus as the God-man who has come to this earth. We've been saying now for a couple weeks as we've been building up to this, that this is the center point of what Paul wants to say in the book of Philippians. We've just looked at the last couple of weeks about his exhortation to humility and unity, and now he's going to give us that example of humility as he points us to Jesus. But this is more than just a, hey, be, look, be like that guy sort of a passage. This is theologically rich with, with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and, and uh, uh, some scholars even, even go as far as to say that this, is the, this, this passage represents the center point of all of Paul's theology, this Christ-centeredness. He's, we've, we've been saying this now since we started Philippians. Paul is all about Jesus. He's excited about Jesus. He can't stop talking about Jesus. He can't go but a couple of verses without reorienting our hearts and minds towards Jesus. And this is the pinnacle of what he has to say about Jesus, that God came to this earth as a human. In fact, I, I mentioned it already, these verses, most scholars believe that this was a, one of the very earliest hymns in the, in the early church. They don't, there's no agreement on, on what sort of meter this was supposed to be or exactly what, what this sounded like in the original. But because of the, the, the poetic nature of it, some of your Bibles even have it blocked off like, like a psalm uh, because that's what it, what it was. It was either a creed or something they sang that in the early church. This was, this was to, to orient the focus on Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to, we're going to look at this, this hymn as it, as it tells us about the Messiah. Today we're going to talk about the incarnation of the Messiah. Next week we'll look at the humility of the Messiah. The next week after that, on the 17th, we'll look at the obedience of the Messiah. And then finally on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the exaltation of the Messiah. This is a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And I hope that as we walk through it, you see the glory and the majesty of this precious text. And so if you're taking notes this morning, uh, the, the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is the meaning of the incarnation. Now, one of the things that we're going to do here, and I, I kind of wrestle, wrestle with this, but we're, we're going to go into the deep waters just a little bit as we talk about the incarnation. In, the incarnation is one of those theological words that simply means that, that, that the Messiah, that, that God himself came as the Messiah. He came as a human being. And, and if you've grown up in the church, we're so used to just talking about this. We're so used to this, the, the Christmas stories, the, the Christmas songs that celebrate this. But what we don't often realize is that the early church really wrestled with how to articulate this. If you read the Old Testament, for example, it's not abundantly clear that our God is three in one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're used to talking about that. It's made its way into the language of the church, to the historic creeds and confessions of the church, because the early church hammered this out. 
There were those in the, in the first century and in the second and third century who were like, the Bible says, look at Deuteronomy 6, the, the Lord our God is one. We have one God. What is this Jesus coming to say, I and the Father are one? How does he get away with that? We have one God. And that's why, that's why so many people were upset with him. Like, he, he's claiming to be God. We have one God, and yet he himself is now saying that he's equal with God. What, what's this? And then you bring the Holy Spirit into the mix? Well, what are you Christians talking about? And so the earliest believers spent a great deal of time fighting these battles for language on how to faithfully articulate these crucial truths of the, of the, of the Christian church. And, and so we're going to take a, a little bit of time this morning to, to delve into that, not for the purpose of learning some theological terminology that's meaningless, but but for the purpose of understanding the, the battles that have been fought. You know, those of us who weren't alive during World War II, we, we see uh, movies or we see depictions or we hear uh, interviews with veterans that describe the intensity of the fighting and the, and the, the sacrifice that took place to, to secure victory in that war. In our hearts are stirred as, as Americans, we, we think, wow, what was given to accomplish that, that victory? And we recognize that understanding those historical events are so crucial for our appreciation of what we have today as a nation, the freedoms that we have as a nation. Well, in the same way, learning from church history, learning what the earliest believers wrestled with and in and, and some ways fought for, and, and in many cases died for, to be able to preserve. It, it's so crucial for us to understand and appreciate what we have today. So as we think about the incarnation, it comes to the forefront in verses 6 and 7 of Philippians 2. Paul tells us, adopt the same attitude of that as that of Christ Jesus in verse 5. And then he says, who, existing in the form of God, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made, being made in human likeness. Now, these verses have caused all kinds of discussion and debate throughout church history. And we're going we're gonna, to, hopefully you'll understand why by the time we're done this morning. And so as, as believers tried to articulate, what is this saying? What is being communicated here and in other texts that, that explain that, that, that Jesus is God and yet man? What's being said here? One of the ways it's been described is, is, is like this, that Jesus Christ the only begotten Son of God, begotten before all the ages and of one substance with the Father, was made flesh through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, making him truly God and truly human, possessing two natures which are not confused, changed, divided, or separated. Now, that's a mouthful. And it can be easy to look at a definition like that, and you're like, okay. So what's the big deal? Well, the, the, the early church understood that every aspect of this statement was, was crucial to not, not 
distorting the biblical representative of Jesus Christ, to, to, to not distorting his, his character and his purpose in coming. And so they fought for this. This statement is, is a summary of what I put in your bulletins there from the, the Chalcedon statement, which we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. That Jesus Christ, the, the one and true Son of God, was begotten and birthed through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, making him truly God and truly human. We have to understand that the, the, the text of Philippians chapter 2, the rest of the scriptures, as well as the early church, testify to the fact that Jesus is God. Now we may say, I get that. I learned that in Sunday school. But this was so revolutionary. Never before had God done anything like this. He, he had done, he, he, had, he had appeared in, in various ways in the Old Testament, but to take on flesh, to be born as a baby? The New Testament affirms that Jesus is fully God. The text in, there in, in, in Philippians 2.6 says it this way, who, being in the very nature God. It's part of who he is, who Jesus is. He's, he is God. He didn't just become God was not occasionally God or representing God. He's, his very nature is God. Colossians 1, in this beautiful statement, which may also have been a, a hymn, we don't know for sure, says it like this. Jesus is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Listen, we cannot exalt the godness of Jesus too much. We can't say too much about his, his, his divinity, I remember as, I, as, I, as this first started to dawn on me as a teenager that Jesus, Jesus was involved in creation. Like I sort of had this mentality that Jesus, uh, Jesus was like uh, in the bullpen throughout most of human history. And uh, when, when the ninth inning came, the, that, that quiet moment in Bethlehem, then... then the manager called him in. The father's like, all right, you're up. You've been waiting for this. But Jesus has been involved as, as, as the son throughout all human history. And this passage in Colossians tells us that he was involved in creation. He's before all things. This is hard to comprehend because everything that we know had a beginning. I, I didn't grow up here in Clare, but I'll talk to some of you folks that have spent your entire lives here. And you, you'll describe places in town that, that looked significantly different. Or you'll, you'll tell me about a storefront downtown, and you'll be like, well, not the last, not, not two stores ago, but the one before that, this used to be a, we think about what, some of you remember what Hamburger Hill looked like before there were hamburgers on the hill. Some of you remember that being farmland. Some of you have, have, have told me stories about how much th this, 
this place has changed. You can remember back to what it was like before. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus had no beginning. There was never a time that he was not. Jesus is God. This passage affirms the deity of the Messiah, and we must too. But this passage also reminds us that Jesus is fully human. It tells us there in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse, um, yeah, verse 6. No, verse 7, and said he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, or you could, can be translated being made in human likeness. Jesus was a human, and, and this is, this is in and of itself is baffling. And I think for most of us, again, if you've grown up in the church, we're probably a little more comfortable with talking about him as God. We, if you've grown up in a, in a, in a Bible teaching uh, environment, you hear about the miracles of Jesus, and, and you, you hear about the, the work of Jesus upon the cross, and you've heard about the resurrection, and you know that he conquered death, and we can see the power, the godness of Jesus, but we sometimes underemphasize the fact that, that he became human. The Bible says that he became, took on flesh and blood like us. Jesus, he got tired. He got colds. He cried. As a kid, he fell down and scraped his knee and bled. Jesus is a human being. And, and we can't lose sight of either of these. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. He experienced more emotions. He had the fully orbed existence at an emotional level with grief and sorrow, joy and anger, hunger, thirst, tiredness. He even had a spirit and a soul. So even he shares even in the immaterial parts of humanity. And the Bible is clear and church history affirmed that, that this is the way it had to be. And and the text tells us here that even though he existed in the form of God or being in the very nature with, with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He decided not to hold on to his place of glory in the heavens. We've all been in those moments where you had something you just did not want to let go of. We'll probably see it here at Christmas time. The kids tear into a package. I don't know about you, but like the, the worst was when your parents would get you a, a gift. I had three brothers, or four of us, and the worst was when your parents would get you a gift that you were supposed to share. And you and you all loved it. And it was not something that could be used together. It was supposed to be like it was something that had to be, it had to take time around. Like you don't want to let go of it when it's you're, the timer's up and you gotta share it. It's painful as a child. Be painful as an adult, too. Jesus said, I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to hold on to my position here in the heavens. I'm, I'm going to relinquish this. And so it says, He made Himself nothing. Now, 
I, I'm not going to go into it, but that, that, that phrase has been part of considerable debate over what that means. It's the Greek word kenosis. But most theologians have held to the fact that, that Jesus is not saying that he, he in any way stopped being God. And most translations uh, rep, uh, represent that faithfully. Because the word can mean emptying. And, and some liberal scholars over the years and critics of uh, trying to attack the, the deity of Christ say, look, he, he gave up. He emptied himself of his deity when he came to this earth. He was not fully God. He wasn't really God. He gave that up so that he could become a human. And, 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 and scholars who've been faithful to the rest of scriptures and understand the ins and outs of this language say, no, 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 it, it, it was an emptying himself. It was a pouring out of himself. It was a, a humbling of himself. And that's the whole context of this passage, that he had this privilege. He had the highest possible seat in the, in the, in the, in the place. And he says, I'm not going to stay there because it's comfortable, because it's easy. I'm going to step down from my throne so that I can become one of them so that they can be with us. Jesus possessed all of God's attributes. And he says, no, I'm going to surrender this place of authority. The word means he, he divested himself of his pres prestige or privileges. New King James translates it like this. He made himself of no reputation. And he took on himself the form of a servant. He had every right to hold on to that position in the, in the, in the presence of God. Listen, it's, it's where we want to go. Like, it's, it's our destination as believers. The presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together. And it, it, he had, like, it, it was the best place to be. We've all been in those places where we just, we want to hold on to that precious moment. Some of you will have some of those those moments here at Christmas time where you just don't want to let it go. Uh, some of us will have those family gatherings where we can't wait to leave. That's a different story. We have those moments in life where you just, you just want it to linger. You wish you could hit pause. You know, as a parent watching your newborn sleep and, 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 and as, as uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a, just a special moment on your wedding day or, or maybe it's a, a beautiful, quiet quiet, snowy morning, and you're just enjoying the, 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 the stillness. We, we've all been in those places. We just don't want to let go. And Jesus here was in the best of all possible places, and he, he chose to let go so that he could be with us. He exchanged all the glory and the status he had and willingly came to earth. And he was subjected to the greatest humiliation mankind has ever known. And he became man. Theologians call this the, the hypostatic union. That is the union of Jesus' two natures into a single person. And um, we can't say enough about how crucial this is. I mentioned it already, but believers have, have fought for this, have, have 
sought to figure out ways to articulate this clearly. And I, and I just want to touch on this briefly. Some of you are history buffs, and um, what I'm about to say will not be enough. You, you, you'd, you'd love to drink this up more. Some of you are like, oh, I, I came here to worship, not go to history class. I'm just going to be really brief about this. But it's, <laughs> it's so important to understand where we've come from. Some of you have had a chance to visit iconic structures in our country, maybe the White House or the Empire State Building, the St. Louis Arch, the Golden Arches, all these iconic places that represent America. And you recognize as you look at them that they didn't just show up overnight, that there was, there was a process that went into the building and the construction of them. And that's what the early church did to articulate these crucial truths. For example, the um, I already mentioned the doctrine of the Trinity. But when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, many of these battles in the, in the early church were fought over, over trying to understand these, this division or this, this, this unity of his godness and his humanity. And I just want to mention them briefly. You can jot them down or don't. You can look at them later, but it, it's... There's that old saying, those who, who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And if we don't just take a moment to pause and understand what's went into the formation of this theology, there'll be that, that time when heresy comes along, this distortion of who Jesus is, and we're kind of like, eh, okay, it doesn't sound too far off. Let's, let's go with it. We need to understand this. First of all, back in 325, the Council of Nicaea convened to affirm that Jesus is truly God. There was a, a bishop by the name of Arius, and he was, he was teaching that Jesus was a created being, that he was subordinate to God. This was happening in the church, and there were actually a lot of churches that were jumping on board with that. That passage in Colossians 1 says he's the firstborn of all creation. And if you take that by itself, you can begin to think, maybe he is a created being. And Arius was a very good communicator, and he, he brought a lot of people along. And so churches got together at a council. There were seven different councils throughout church history, for whatever reason, if you want to know that. Uh, and, and in 325, this council at Nicaea, they, they, they got together, they looked at the scriptures, they, they, they discussed this. And one of the biggest, the biggest defenders of what, what the church has come to taught was a man by the name of Athanasius. In fact, there was a phrase that developed through this called, it said, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because there were that many people who were beginning to side with Arius. And, the, and the, 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 the pastors and the bishops and the leaders of these churches began to look at the scriptures and over a period of time at the council realized that Jesus is truly God, that, that he, he's not just a created being. Unless you think that this is something that is confined to history and we don't need to worry about it today, this is actually exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that, that, that they're modern-day Arians, that, that Jesus was created by God the Father. So this is, this is crucial for us today. The second council I just want to point your attention to that dealt with the, the, this person and, and, and work of Jesus was the Council of Constantinople in 381. And they, they were fighting against a teaching that was the Apollinarians. He was, he was a bishop in Laodicea who said that the two natures of Christ could not exist in the same person. 
And so he taught that the mind of Jesus was the logos and the human body was a glorified version of itself. And he denied the true humanity of Jesus. And so the council got together and said, no, Jesus is truly human. And then another one in, in 431, the Council of Ephesus, was dealing with a, a heresy called Nestorianism. And, and they divided Christ into two persons and, and, and somehow said that, that he had a he had a part of him, like he had, he had like separate natures that, that like were not united into one person, like the Orthodox taught, Orthodox Church taught. And, uh, and so uh, they, they, the council got together to sort of reaffirm and, and articulate even more clearly uh, what the church was to understand regarding the natures of Jesus as they came to dwell in him. And then the last one that we want to mention is the Council of Chalcedon. And that's where, that's the statement you have in your bulletin that provided the, the most clear and articulate nature, or statement regarding the, 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 the two natures, the union of Jesus' two natures, his divine and human natures, that they're united without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. And so these battles were fought by the early church to help us have language today to articulate the incarnation of Jesus. And I don't go into those things to just try to, try to make this like a, like a, a seminary classroom or, or to simply just give us knowledge that doesn't mean anything. But, but we need to understand where we've come from. We need to understand how crucial the, the union uh, of Christ, the, 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 the divinity and the humanity are to our experience today. And so as, as we close, let me just draw our attention to that. Because if we, if we just leave it out there, we could, we could say, okay, that's some academic discussion that maybe is just not all that meaningful to where we are today. But he, here's the simple fact, that both his humanity and his deity are absolutely necessary for our salvation. We cannot be Christians. Listen, we cannot be saved if Jesus is not fully God and fully man. We, we cannot be brought into the family of God if you remove one or the other of his deity or his humanity. In fact, a fourth century bishop of Constantinople, Gregory of Nazianzus, said this, For that which he has not assumed, he is not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. Without Jesus' deity, he's not powerful enough to save us. He's not powerful enough to rise again from the dead. If he's not God, well, number one, he was a liar. But number two, he lacks the necessary power to bring us into the life of God. Furthermore, furthermore, he's unable to be the perfect spotless substitute. You and I know this, that, that, that one of us, if we got together and we were going to figure out how to save the world, and, and God said, listen, somebody has to die for everybody else. And we're like, all right, let's pick somebody out here that, that's going to do this. And we'd probably all agree that we probably should pick someone who's pretty good, who's maybe like the most moral among us, should be the sacrifice. But even in that, even the best person in the world, the Bible says, can't, can't earn God's favor. Is not a sufficient substitute. It could only be a perfect lamb. It could only be a perfect sacrifice. And the only one to do that is God himself. 
And so he devises this plan to become a human being so that he can become that sacrifice. Jesus had to be God to save us, but he also had to be a human being. And there's so much we could say about this. I'll just say two things. Being a human means that he can sympathize with us. Jesus understands exactly what you're going through right now. As we come into the holiday season, we know that this can be a difficult time for folks. For some of you, it's, it's, it's going to be the first holiday without a loved one who passed this year. For some of us, it brings up painful memories of the past, of dysfunctional family and ruptured relationships that have never been restored. For others of us, this season, it can just be an immense amount of stress. We secretly just can't wait till it's over because it is just so busy and so wild and crazy that, that we, we just do not look forward to it. For others of us, the, the struggles that we might be facing have nothing to do with the season or with Christmas, but they, they may be physical struggles. They may be sinful temptations that we're battling. There may be other spiritual just, just hurts that we've not worked through, that we're, we're aching this, this, this morning. And in Hebrews, we're told, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, he says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, because Jesus became an actual human being, actual flesh and blood, he can look at you and say, I get it. I understand. Some of us may try to empathize with one another's hurt and pain, and we should. But in many, many cases, we can't say, I, I understand. I've been there. Because we haven't. We haven't walked in that, in that, in that person's shoes. We haven't gone through that, that particular loss. And as much as we might try to empathize, there's always some way we come up short. And Jesus said, listen, I get your struggles. My brothers and sisters, we touched on this a few weeks ago, but when we pray, we're not just praying to this God who's out there and has no real connection with our daily life. We, we come before a God who has worn our shoes, who has, has walked where we've walked. He gets your struggles. He gets your temptations. And he truly cares. And there's no, been no greater demonstration of that than what this passage is telling us, that God left his throne on high and took on flesh and blood and lived among us. Just think about the beauty of that. Jesus didn't just come and die. He could have come as a fully adult man, I, I think, and, and just said like, hey everybody, I'm here to die for you. And the next day, we have the crucifixion. He could have done that. But the whole process of his, his birth and growing up and then spending years walking among his people and teaching and living, eating their food, sleeping in their beds, experiencing life with them shows us that 
He longs for us to know that solidarity, that oneness that we have with him. My brothers and sisters, when you talk to Jesus, you're not just talking to a God who's out there. You're talking to one who has, has gone through everything that you have. Furthermore, this, this humanity gives him the right to be our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We can go to the Father because Jesus became a man. There's so much we could say there, but I, I want to just finish with this. The incarnation reveals his astonishing love for us. The incarnation reveals his astonishing love for us. How do you even get over something like this? How, how do we articulate this? How do we celebrate this? We can pen Christmas carols. We can write books. We can stop and reflect on it. But how do you articulate the, the love of God that was so broad and so vast and so deep that would, that would go to these lengths to help somebody? To rescue somebody. You think about the times in your life when, when you've seen somebody in need. And we all have those limits of like, well, I'll do this and this and this for them, but that might be just asking a little too much. Like if you see somebody broken down by the side of the road, struggling with their spare tire, maybe if it's kind of a nice sunny day and you've got some extra time, maybe, maybe we'll stop and help. But if I'm in a hurry to get somewhere, and it's doing this outside, it's snowing, eh, I'll throw up a prayer and keep moving. You know, we, we all have those limits where we're like, eh, eh, eh. But God's love was so immense that he looked out, and, and, he, and, and this was, we were his enemies, the Bible said. We wanted nothing. We weren't by the side of the road calling out for help. We were saying, we don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here, God. That's the history. I'll read the Old Testament all the way through. That's the history of humanity. It's saying, we've got this. We can do this on our own. And God saw that humanity was marching towards hell to an eternity away from him. And, and in his immense love said, I'm going to devise a rescue plan that will involve me becoming human, me dying, so that I can bring you into my family so that I can welcome you into my life and I can give you eternal life. How do we articulate that love? Like John says in, in, in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has shown unto us. It's, it, 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 it's beyond words to capture even a fraction of this kind of love. John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came bearing a fullness loaded, laden down with grace and with truth, bringing both, not one at the expense of other, but telling us the truth about who he is and about who we are and what we needed, and the grace 
that, that could fill that vacuum, the grace that could give us what we need. It's almost as if heaven was bursting with so much love that it couldn't help but spill over into this earth. And at Christmas time, we celebrate this. Theologians call this the incarnation, the hypostatic union. Maybe if it's easier for us to remember, we could just call it love. That God himself opened the floodgates of heaven and poured out love. Not just a thing, but a person who became one of us so that we might live. There's an old hymn that says this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found, it found out me. The hymn writer didn't articulate that phrase, emptied himself of all but love. No, he kept his deity, but he got the idea that the word became flesh and became love incarnate so that we might experience life. This morning, we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's table to sort of just double down on our gratitude for what Jesus has done in coming to this earth. The bread representing his body, the juice representing his blood that was shed on our behalf, his blood that became our atonement for sins. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we want to invite you to celebrate with us as we pray. Um, if you've never celebrated communion here today uh, at Brown Corners, just, just come on up out of your seat. And uh, each table, there's, there's room to form two, two lines. And uh, we want to just invite you to, to take it and then come back and, and have a seat and partake uh, whenever you've had a chance to just spend some time in prayer or whenever the Spirit of God's leading you. Our worship team's going to lead us in a closing song as we pray. And I, I just want to, just even before we do that, I, I just want to give us a chance to just quiet our hearts before the Lord as we reflect on the beauty of the incarnation and the glory of Jesus Christ. I also just want to mention as well that um, we have uh, gluten-free bread available, I believe, on each of the tables, or maybe it's just that one there. And um, the, the offering plate is, uh, if you feel led to give over and above your normal giving, as you know, that goes towards um, those in our, in our church family who might be in special need uh, during this season, and it's just a way for us to reach out and bless them. So let's just take a moment and bow our heads, and I just want to give you a chance to express your heart to God for a few moments and quiet here before we begin to celebrate communion together. Our Heavenly Father, what glorious riches to us have been bestowed in our Savior's incarnation, that God would become flesh, it is such an unbelievable love, 
a love that we did not earn, that we can't articulate. We're going to do our best. And we just want to say thank you, God. Thank you for loving us, even though we didn't deserve it. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue Adam's helpless race. For all those who trust, who believe, who embrace Jesus and what he has done in his death and resurrection, you tell us that, that we enter into that life. We're recipients. But we've got to believe it. And I pray, God, today that if there's any here among us who who've never embraced the incarnate Son of God, the, the love of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, that today they would. And as we celebrate this table together as your people, God, just envelop us further into that love. Envelop us further into the finished work of Jesus. And may we experience a deeper intimacy with you, a deeper gratitude for your grace and your sacrifice as we celebrate the table together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come.
Thank <laughs> you.